for the evening talk is on awareness mostly because I can't think of a title <laughs> in the old texts old Buddhist texts there are um, countless numbers of talks they're referred to as sutras S-U-T-R-A-S and the talks cover a wide variety of themes which are for the most part uh, relevant for our daily life and our experience of being on this earth and as is quite common with uh, uh, talks and teachings that some of them seem to have in the course of time registered very well, very deeply in fact and there has been an emphasis upon particular ones for century after century after century and one of those is called the Satipatthana Sutra and Sati means awareness or mindfulness Patana means a foundation and sutra means talk the talk on the foundations of awareness the foundations of mindfulness or the station is another way of expressing it and in that particular talk of the Buddha he said that when we look at life and our relationship to it there are various aspects and features of life which we are consistently concerned with and they are quite specific and any inquiry into life, any insight and realization into life will accommodate and will embrace these four foundations of awareness the initial one being body second being feelings, the third state of mind including thought and fourth is dharma and in that used in a very broad and expansive way everything from the world which is going on around us to uh, teachings about dealing with and being with life to ways of participating in the world all of this we call the body, feeling, states of mind and the things of the world shall we say is what a human being is essentially concerned with at times we have perhaps noticed with ourselves and with others that this world that we are living and participating in seems to be characterized with much problem and suffering conflict and confusion and we look so to speak for a way out of this an escape from it and for some the escape from it is as it were adopting a particular range or set of beliefs which sometimes seem and appear very otherworldly 
and that may be concentrated in the form of a particular metaphysics, G-O-D, and others, and sometimes a range of beliefs which seem to be difficult to fit in with our daily experience of life. And we see in this, in this world with its diversity of religions, diversity of cultures, diversity of philosophies and metaphysics, that sometimes some of that seems at such a distance from who we are, where we are, and what's going on with our life. And so sometimes we have found ourselves pushed and pulled by two very powerful forces. One of them is the forces of uh, religion, and both in its moderate and extremist form, fundamentalist form. Sometimes we have become quite disillusioned with all of that, no matter what the uh, rationalization of the beliefs may be, and in disillusionment with that, we may have then been pulled or identified ourselves with an extremely secular view of life, a kind of pragmatic view of existence where we have defined existence exclusively in terms of uh, situational ethics, in terms of uh, knowledge and its pursuit of career, of having a, a reasonably decent relationship with other people uh, and oneself, and the pursuance of personal interests with some occasional um, interest or concern with the welfare of other people directly or indirectly. And this is, a, I think, a fairly typical secular view of life. It's a value system which has been imposed upon us. It is a form of, I would say, indoctrination. And sometimes we have asked ourselves, is that what life is about? If it isn't just about that, what is it about? What is the alternative, if any, which is being offered? And sometimes we have said, well, it appears that the only alternative which is being offered is a religion and a strongly held religious view of existence. And I just wonder whether in either way, in the forces of secularism and in the forces of religionism, that to either take up one or both and be identified with one or both somehow is a, a restrictive element on the opportunity for discovery. It's as though, and as we were exploring yesterday in the inquiry a little bit, it's as though that a healthy doubt in life is a doubt which has some doubt in the assurance 
doubt in those who have, seem to have an assured answer which is conceptualized. To have a healthy doubt in spiritual life is a doubt in situations where there's an absolute answer which gets conceptualized. So, from my uh, understanding of uh, the teaching, from the way and the application and the experience of them, there's our way of life which is taking place. That way of life, to various degrees, brings us into an awareness of particular things which we call existence. One of them is the relationship to bodily life, this relationship to bodily life. For example, we can become quite preoccupied, obsessed may be too strong a word, but it certainly won't be for some, we can become quite preoccupied with health, the awareness of health. And, not I don't want to go into all the uh, industries that um, involved in all, all of that. I have too many views and opinions about it already. That in this preoccupation with health, we find ways to try to sustain our health for as long as possible. And we hear and we read that in that particular time in which we live, more and more people are living for a longer period of time. And this generates a thought inside of us, this is something which is good. And in one of the inquiries that I had at Gaia House, a uh, person said to me, she was retired in her mid-60s, uh, she said that she was really concerned about the future, that she really wished to live um, for a lot longer. She hoped to have um, a lot more years left of her life. And I asked a question which seemed to be obvious to uh, myself, but apparently no, not to her. And that question was, what on earth do you want to go on living for a long time for? And it had never struck her to actually ask this question. And so sometimes there is a kind of notion or an impact which is made through the social forces of conditioning that in itself living for a long time is something inherently good in itself. Let me ask, but for what purposes? What, 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 what's, what's, what's the idea which gives support to length of time and good going together? So sometimes, when now, with our bodily life, with a kind of natural interest in health, and some natural interest in continuity, yet is it just health and continuity for its own sake? Since 
if it is for its own sake, we are embarking on a lost cause. Death will come as sure as night follows day it will come. And so the whole preoccupation with continuity of life and obsessing about it in some cases and doing all manner of extraordinary things at huge expense to perpetuate life in the end the King Yama as they say in the East will come along will tap one on the shoulder and say you're next you go you've had your time you're out and so they say whenever we look at health and continuity as much as we appreciate it as much as that response can occur in us and we do the right things for it but for what? if it's for its own sake to me it is pointless if it's for the sake of self-interest it's pointless in the awareness of bodily life in the relationship to our being in this uh, world our participation in it there are situations which arise and some of you in this hall here will know in your life at this present time and in recent times very much what I mean. There are situations in one's life where no matter how much concern we have for bodily health, bodily sensi sensitivities, circumstances can intrude dramatically and in a, in a moment which change the whole relationship to body because the impact on the body of the body upon consciousness is, can be so dramatic sudden piece of information about one's state of health sudden uh, accident a sudden change in the genetic biological uh, function of the body and something which was assumed and which we took for granted overnight so to speak can change and we find ourselves in a situation where bodily life draws our attention much more than we would ever want it to and uh, sometimes the painful life of the body uh, keeps emerging and impacting itself in consciousness but unfortunately, with that impact, in that awareness of the bodily condition, in that impact that takes place in the pressure upon it, the I and the my tends to arise with quite some degree of intensity. And one says, I am sick. I am in pain. I am suffering. I have this disease. I have inherited this. I have this genetic uh, fault. I I, I. And, when, and with that pain which, it, which is arising very easily it appears like that the consciousness of oneself one's awareness of oneself as it were becomes shrinking 
quite in a devious, insidious way, it shrinks into and around and on top of that particular pain of one's life. And sometimes even when the pain is lower, at a lower threshold, even when it is diminishing to, to some degree or other, we can find ourselves preoccupied with it morning, noon and night because the potency of the impact has registered so strongly in the feeling life that is all we can think about. Me and my body. My awareness of my health. And that one wonders then, is it? And I think what, this is what the Buddha is endeavouring to point out here. Is it that in the relationship to body, that in fact, the body and the whole expression of the organism, including the painful expression, is not the be-all and end-all of existence. It is not the centre of existence, no matter what the sensation that's going on in the body. It cannot be the centre of life. But only I and my and possessiveness and clinging and holding and identification can give that sort of notion at tremendous cost to awakening and liberation. When are we going to be able, with respect to the body and reverentially to the body, no matter what the pain and what the circumstances that are occurring with it, really understand well with ourselves that the body has its place in the scheme of things. No more, no less than anything else. So that we see what the teachings of awareness, Satipatthana Sutra, the foundations of awareness, the awareness of objects, that we can see that with the bodily life and its manifestation in all that it expresses is this body does not belong to me. It comes from nature, it belongs to the nature, it's a fruit of the nature, it emerges out of the nature and my goodness it returns to the nature. And to forget that is to start the road into hell. Who on earth could produce this? Create this, manufacture this, conceive of this, or whatever. Not a human being in their wildest imagination could ever generate the human organism. And every expression of it, every pain of the body, unwanted and difficult and unaccepted, as it may be, is surely the very pain of it is the living proof that it's not one's own. Who on earth would want pain in the body? Nobody, nobody, nobody. Belonging, coming out of the conditions of nature. Why does it come out of the conditions of nature? Because it belongs to nature 
does not belong to self. And we, we suffer immensely, emotionally and psychologically as human beings when somehow with, there's some perversion in the awareness which says, this belongs to me, it's mine. All belonging out of the nature, with the nature. So the teachings of awareness, teachings of Satipatthana, highlight this and, and in subtle ways try to get this across so that the, the mode of language it, we can discern the difference between the mode of language and the way things are the mode of language says I, Christopher, am sitting here I, Christopher, this form, voice, presence or whatever and you are sitting there this is my hand, this is my arm, this is my leg all in the mode of language the mode of representation but deep down, deep down, even when we say this can it be such that deep down we know it's just the way we relate it's human communication, it's human words being exchanged through the air but deep down we know it's not mine, it's not what I am, I am not the maker of this, I am not the possessor of this, I am not the owner of all of this, this I and my is simply a label. Nothing behind the label, nothing whatsoever behind the description because the body is not me, it belongs to nature comes from it, emerges from it and returns to it and it's a great the greatest sigh of relief on this earth to know this deeply the Buddha has also in his uh, wonderful uh, wisdom and insight into these things has also referred to the, the, the feeling life, the emotional life. And in very much in the same light and the same spirit with the feelings and emotions. And again, it's as though, in a way, when we look at ourselves, we could almost say of our relationship to life that the body is a kind of uh, more gross, substantial presence it seems to be more tangible and sometimes there's, there's some more refinement with our being the emotional life, the feeling life takes a priority sometimes a person, a human being he or she describes himself as a feeling type Generally speaking, it tends to indicate that the feeling world, the emotional world, both pleasant and unpleasant, both uh, what one appreciates and what is painful, is more of an influence or has a greater impact on consciousness than some other state or experiences or even bodily life. And so some may think of themselves as 
feeling type of person. And in that feeling type of person, something beautiful when feelings can, even a difficult one, be allowed to flow easily and freely. And one of the things which uh, I think awareness needs to address and needs to take uh, note of, particularly with the feeling life, is that there is a danger that in some fields of work, no matter how noble the aspiration is with the work, in terms of for other people, their welfare and benefit, it can be in a gradual but systematic way at the expense of one's emotions, at the expense of feeling. And for those of you who work, uh, whatever, in an office, or work in a factory, or you're engaged in a great deal of study, or a great deal of uh, listening to other um, human, human beings, that in the course of time, constant attention, which is not fully engaged and involving one's feeling life, but there's a state of constant attention, in this case, in this case to something other, in which the heart life is very quiet and still, if not forgotten and neglected, that can mean for some that the feeling life itself, in its neglect, begins to dry up. Just like water. If, the, if we generate in our life uh, a landscape which becomes barren, the water itself will be of feeling life will begin to dry up and we will, won't feel natural, normal, human feeling responses to numerous situations. The world will stop touching us. That can happen as much in a meditation hall as it can happen in an office, in a studio, in a factory, in a... Uh, 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 on the street, in the home life, or whatever. And sometimes, it's, and, and regularly, it's quite vital in anything which we are giving attention to, listening, or speaking, or meditating, or whatever. What's the feeling right now? What's the feeling right now? Right now, where is the heart in the expression of this particular dynamic, this particular process, whatever it is. If it's been neglected and forgotten about and we're just caught up in, in attention, caught up with body, caught up with another situation around, the feeling life starts to go quiet. It tends easily to either, as I say, a certain hardening of the heart takes place or reactive modes take place. One minute, rather, feeling less dry, cold, analytical. Next minute or next day, feeling agitated, upset, charged up, aggressive. And the movement back and forth, why? Lack of awareness of the place of feelings in existence. Are we living this way of living. 
after we feel our feeling life is really participating in a warm and caring and reverential way, I would say, in the activities in which we engage in? Or is it such that the mechanics of existence have come to dominate us to such a degree that what we do, we do it out of obligation, we do it out of duty, we do it because we've been told to do it, we do it because that's what we learned and therefore that's what we have to do, and it's done out of rote. And if it is, it means that the feeling life somewhere is tragically forgotten. And that can happen in the meditation room, as I say, as much as anywhere else. Is our feeling life alive and well in the field of play, in the field of existence, in the field of creativity, in the field of communication? For some, when it is like that with the feeling life, if a person is feeling that there isn't enough joy in their life, not enough happiness in their life, not enough um, fun and play and creativity, if that really feels to be put on the back burner of one's existence, then we have some fairly serious questions to be asking ourselves. What is it? What is it that I am doing that I've got so involved in and so invested in that I'm willing to sacrifice joy for it? That I'm willing to put aside a receptivity to the most beautiful and mystical and wonderful things of life because of one or two things which I had said matters more than happiness and joy. What on earth, what way could a human being even imagine that that priority could be worthwhile, that it could be at such a devastating loss of fun and play and creativity and the capacity to celebrate and to receive and to be deeply touched by things and to, and to feel in the, the rhythm of the day the very poetry of life. If we don't have that, what on earth has happened? So this awareness, as the Buddha said, of bodily life, this awareness of feeling life and, and all that it embraces in life is such that the contact and the touch of that can let the feeling spark. So sometimes in the situation and the environment that we, that we have here, just small characteristics can stop the opportunity to expand the feeling life. Sometimes we say, 
oh, look outside in the evening and we say, oh, it's cold tonight. I don't think I want to go outside. One says, it's cold tonight, therefore I go outside. One says, oh, I'm feeling a little bit tired tonight. I think I'll uh, um, go uh, straight to bed. Some resistance, some contraction, some withdrawal, some holding back, rather than saying, oh, I'm tired tonight, therefore I'll stay up. <laughs> I'm, I'm hungry, therefore I'll eat less. I'll, I want to get out of this meditation hall as quickly as possible, therefore I'll stay in it longer. Sometimes the withdrawal, the contraction, the pulling it away in quite small, subtle things like here, and they are generally are fairly subtle. Can we notice that this has got something to do with a feeling freezing up somewhere, freezing the potential, freezing the possibility for something of a discovery? And so sometimes when that is occurring in the feeling life, we say, as we say many times, let's stop. Let's not just be pulled in by that momentary feeling which is occurring. Let me see what it might mean just to do precisely the opposite of the original message. And it doesn't have to be anything extreme and absurd and, uh, and exaggerated in that. The examples that I gave you just then a small example to break the pattern. Why do we want to break the pattern? Because we want to discover what's beyond the pattern and what's beyond the pattern is infinitely preferable than to live as a mechanized human being. Sometimes here in our feeling life is a, a occurring and it's flowing and the waters of life it's expressing and picking up on the poetry of existence and when that occurs in those moments in those times whether it's in here or anywhere else in in this place or elsewhere everything stops because it's an act of grace to have been touched in that moment nobody nothing is more important than that and so sometimes we just are touched by a, a circumstance that brings the joy. That joy can be a memory. That joy can be uh, something that we see or hear, smell or taste or touch. That joy can be a, a contact. That joy can be a, a, a flowering from within. We have no way of expressing that joy, that, 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 uh, that, that delight. It comes as an act of grace. It comes as a gift to us in that time to hell with all the meditation all the method and the technique and what, whatever we can mute it all because the joy is present the meditation, the awareness has done its function for us we can forget the breathing, meditation and the body awareness and, and, and sitting trying to look like a Buddha and just let the, let the joy be present. Let the life be touched with it. And that, as I say, applies here and it can apply in 
any other circumstance and situation in life because this world is desperately short of the fountain of joy. Desperately short of it. Sometimes in our ways the Buddha speaks too of the way of the states of mind, awareness of bodily life, awareness of the feeling life, and awareness too of the states of mind. And in the uh, yesterday evening's talk, I different ways referred to that as uh, just expanding on some of the points there from uh, the teachings of the Buddha. And therefore I'm speaking of spiritual experiences and conventional experiences, experiences which we have and experiences which we don't have, experiences which we would like to have and experiences which we get whether we like them or not. And all of that only shows to you and I again and again that in the um, manifestation of things, life beautifully and mercifully, it's the only word that comes to mind here, mercifully is such that it's not made to fit in with what you and I want. Life is not made to fit in with what we want. And because it's not made in that way, it's full of surprises. Sometimes, of course, the last thing that one wants are some of the surprises that come to us. I dispute it for a moment. But that is the juice of existence. And the juice of that existence is such the dynamic of it does generate states of mind. Is it such that we're going to spend our life trying to organize existence to fit in with a state of mind which we are going to be always approving of, which we are always going to find acceptable to ourselves and other people. Nobody, not a Buddha, has done it. What hope is there for the rest of us? So the Buddha speaks of awareness. And in that awareness of states of mind as one of the foundations of the support for awareness, he says there's the mind which is expanded and there's the mind which is contracted. There's the mind which is generous and there's the mind which is tight. There's the mind which is deep and there's the mind which is shallow. There's the mind which is concentrated and there's the mind which isn't concentrated. And he just goes through about eight different pairings of minds. I just gave you four or five of them. And in those pairings of those opposites of the states of mind, we listen to them, we say, oh, they're all familiar. I know when I feel expanded at times, and I know when I feel contracted at times, I know when I feel concentrated, and I know when I feel unconcentrated. This is all familiar. Why is it all familiar? Because it's the mind. It's all familiar. So this familiarity of all of this must include 
some preferences and the preferences are all familiar as well. Awareness of the states of mind the states of mind are born from multiple conditions. Nobody can just say, oh, it's my mind and this is how I am, I create my life, I create my world as it is. If one has given oneself such an arrogant authority to be the creator of one's own existence, if one can do that, then the common sense thing would be to, to turn on the, the tap of joy and never let it get turned off. Who, not the Buddha, past, present or future, has got the capacity to turn on the joy till one is drowning in it. So in the world of down-to-earth spirituality, in the world of practical spirituality, states of mind just help to show. States of mind belong in the nature of things. Making claims over it seems a little ambitious. <laughs> so all of this, awareness and sensitivity without any alienation, no detachment, not trying one centimetre to cut one's interest off from bodily life, from feeling life, from states of mind, but seeing it in the dynamic of things does something wonderful. It, that awareness brings out something called wisdom, something called understanding, something which gives a, a freer sense about the way things are. And this freer sense of the way things are is such that the kind of the substance of body, the substance of emotional life or, and states of mind, don't seem to have the grip because the possessiveness is gone. One has looked with care and with focus and noticed this again and again and one's deep down in oneself, one said, I can't make a claim on this anymore. Can't say I'm the creator of my existence, I'm the creator of my fortune or my misfortune or everything lies in my hand or I've got control over my life and I can, I, I. This mythology around the I, it just loses its substance and it's a delight that it goes. The great relief and relief of life. and then being free, being an awakened human being, being an enlightened human being, and all of these rather fancy, meaningless words, actually, it's all so simple. And one has realised in the beauty of all of this, that one hasn't had to opt for a set of isms and religionism and metaphysics and abstracts and things way out there that one can't relate to, it's too unbelievable. And 
and the other one hasn't said, oh, I can't be involved in any of that, therefore I've just got to go on living my poor, pathetic, self-centred, secularist existence and just go along with the herd. One has not taken one, one has not taken the other, but one has said, let me look into all of these things because there's something in all of in looking into life which is a revelation. And this revelation we are here to let it be confirmed in our own way. In our own way. Not the likes of me and my friend here to tell you you realise these things for yourself. May all beings explore life. May all beings participate in the nature of things. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.